From Miami Law, I'm Annette Uges, and this is The Explainer. And when the corporation stood up and said they were going to rethink their political contributions, this was wrong, this was not right, whether they had voted for someone else didn't matter, this was wrong. It was a clarifying moment. Welcome back to season six of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Fallout from the January 6th attack on the Capitol reverberated throughout the United States, including a swift reaction from corporate America in the form of political contributions. With us today is Francis Hill, an expert on many things, including election law and campaign finance reform. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Francis. Good morning, Catherine. Nice to have you kicking off uh, season six. Nothing else could possibly have gone wrong. And then we had uh, January 6th. So let's just go to the news of the day. So more than 20 of the nation's top 30 corporations who donate to GOP lawmakers scuttled some or all of their support in reaction to the violence at the Capitol. What kind of effect does this have? Well, this was um, when it was announced, and it was announced on January 6th and January 7th, in other words, fast, in real time. It clarified that the violence was unacceptable. Five people died, directly or indirectly. Um, The Capitol was attacked while it was certifying, which is generally a ceremonial act, the, the outcome of the election in an effort to nullify the greatest number of votes ever cast in a national election and deliver the presidency to someone that Americans had not voted for. Um, It was stunning. It was startling. It was disgusting. It produced anxiety, I think, across the country. And when the corporations stood up and said, They were going to rethink their political contributions. This was wrong. This was not right. Whether they had voted for someone else didn't matter. This was wrong. It was a clarifying moment. Okay. And um, there were a couple of things that that we had talked about earlier that were coming out of that, the the punishment and and, and what that that really meant. Yes. It's, um, you know, when... We are now two weeks and one day after the day of incredible violence in our nation's capital um, by our fellow Americans. Um, What stands out is that the violence is still very raw, but also there was an effort to overturn the votes cast by Americans. This incredible Um, turnout in the national election. And that has become the focal point of now much of the criticism. um, There was no controversy over the outcome of the election by the time that the Congress was supposed to be doing this largely ceremonial confirmation of the results turned in by the states. And to make it worse, and what is the source of the lingering concern, is that 139, I believe, members of the Republican Party in the House of Representatives 
and eight U.S. senators, even after the violence, even after the deaths, did not rethink their position on whether they were going to challenge these results. They went ahead with it. And that is the lingering effect of this. Needless to say, we know that there has since been an impeachment, the first time a U.S. president's been impeached twice. And we are looking forward and seeing yet another Senate trial of now someone who is no longer the president. It was a consequential day. Um, When we look at what the businesses did, there was this Moder- this moment of clarity where many of the leading household name businesses, the National Association of Manufacturers, the Business Roundtable, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, all came out and said it to some degree and in some way this was wrong and either they were going to rethink their giving to the members of Congress, especially those who had continued with the challenge to the election after the violence. And so, um, and this was noteworthy because most of these businesses had supported President Trump, worked with him, um, given him campaign money. Um, and so our, our country is in a position now of thinking through who we are and whom we want to be. So um, can you talk a little about the consequences um, to the legislators by this this signal and the, the bigger message it's sending to the American people about the legitis- legitimacy or the illegitimacy of, of this uh, administration? I think it is, in fact, what the businesses did is to say we had long supported the candidate in the presidential election who lost, and that we do not want chaos, we do not want violence, and we believe the election was fair, was certified by the states, and we believe that the Biden administration was elected by a large majority of the Electoral College and a large majority of the popular vote, and that this is a legitimate government of the United States. That's what business stood for. They also made a threat of withholding campaign money. Some of them did. And that threat has raised yet again a number of questions about campaign finance and political money as leverage. Many questions that had, in a sense, been lost in the uproar surrounding the last four years. And so what we're left with now is not only the controversy um, around the violence, about who did what, about what should be done, about how you reconcile unity with accountability. We have, for lawyers to think about, a question of um, political money yet again, and how political money is leveraged. And what we find is that our our law of campaign finance is incomplete and muddled. And we find 
that the laws governing how we conduct our elections have grounds for illegitimate attacks sort of built into them or permit them. And so we have to think of how we do election reform and how we do campaign finance reform. That in itself is a huge agenda um, that, um, you know, we can, if you want to talk about some of the details of the campaign finance issues, the money issues, we can certainly do that. We might note also that after Charlottesville, at the very beginning of the past administration, a number of businesses had broken with the former president over the remark, there were good people on both sides. Um, and that had had rhetoric in that um, in that demonstration, whatever it was, that protest, where let us remember one person was killed at Charlottesville. Um, and, and there had been a break for a while with business and then business reconciled and it got the tax bill of late 2017, which it is very much benefited for and which it generally approves of. Um, I think that there are a couple of um, not only the Washington Post um, sort of surveying of the top 30 contributors to um, congressional races, but the Yale School of Management called this group of 40 top executives. They called it an informal poll. And the results of that poll were to say 100% of them believed that what had gone on on January 6th was utterly wrong. And at that point, 96% um, of them thought that the then president should be impeached again. Um, and in response to the question, should business PACs and trade associations cut off to donations to legislators who aided sedition? Now, there's a question for you. 100% of them said yes. But the question of should businesses halt all political donations? Only 42% yes and 58% said no. So I think what we're seeing here is um, no one is suggesting that business was responsible for the riot. No one is suggesting that business should stop donating. But it does suggest that there is disquiet over how we conduct elections, who can vote, what special burdens are put on what groups of voters. And um, certainly um, what can be accomplished with the leverage of political money, which is what the businesses were trying to do. That, that's a great uh, way, I, I think, maybe to talk a little about soft money and Citizens United and kind of what the real things that are wrong with, you know, where money comes comes into to play. That's exactly right. And I think we can kind of 
this take this very complicated area and to say, let's just look at it a bit systematically and start with all the different ways that money can flow to candidates for public office. We know that business corporations can operate so-called connected PACs, and they give regulated amounts of money, fairly small, but of symbolic importance. Um, and they cannot, corporations cannot contribute directly to a candidate or a political party, but they can contribute through a connected corporate PAC, but they cannot use general treasury corporate money for that. It has to be contributions from their employees. Uh, Francis, are, are political action committees PACs something that have gone on forever or are they a fairly new They're new. Uh, player? Well, they're fairly new. The road to them um, came gradually over time, but the real explosive developments can be traced to two Supreme Court cases. Um, and one is Buckley versus Faleo in 1976, in which the Supreme Court says um, corporations um, can make so-called independent expenditures. They can say, I, Corporation X, um, believe that we should do the following, but they can't coordinate with a candidate or a political party. And then came Citizens United, in which they said a corporation could spend general treasury funds to finance independent expenditures. And that was the floodgate that opened in Citizens United. And this led to the emergence of so-called super PACs, which were accepting independent con uh, contributions of for independent expenditures with no limit whatsoever um, from corporations and from individuals, provided they were not coordinated with any federal candidate. And um, the, um, these super PACs then became the superstars of campaign finance. And was that soft money or dark money or? No, this is not dark money or it's not supposed to be because a super PAC is required to register with the Federal Election Commission and to report its expenditures, its independent expenditures. Now, we know that the Federal Communication Commission has not been able to operate and make commission level decisions for years. Um, because people haven't appointed the proper number of um, commissioners, but the regular staff has continued to work. Now, what I want to do in talking about dark money and soft money is the part of campaign finance that is clearly and blatantly illegal and therefore widely used and highly attractive, not just to business, but to pretty much everyone. And this is the use, which is to say the abuse of exempt organizations 
particularly 501c4 social welfare organizations that can do some politics, but not have that be its primary activity. Uh, A limitation now that's totally ignored because the IRS is doing virtually no audits of organizations on this front. And then the real holy grail that people look for is 501c3 public charities that will launder political money for them and provide the contributors a charitable contribution deduction for their, in effect, political expenditures. And that is unknowable because they don't have to report to anyone and they don't. And this is the the worst single part of the campaign finance landscape. And it has been for a very long time now. Um, And this is not anything that's going to be touched by what the businesses did on January 6th. In my own view, the businesses on January 6th saved democracy from wherever this kind of murderous rampage through the Capitol was going to end up. These were people who had constructed a gallows outside the U.S. Capitol and were chanting, kill Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. They also wanted to apparently shoot Nancy Pelosi. Um, And so they were running through the Capitol. We now know um, and have seen on our TV a great number of times people screaming, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Kill Nancy. Um, In this situation, what we have It's a double crisis, really. We have many crises on top of each other. But one aspect of this is that a number of states have announced their intention to try yet again to suppress the vote, especially of African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Latino-Americans who don't vote for their party, the majority party. Um, And there are efforts to suppress the vote by a number of means, not by violating the 15th Amendment. We've gotten a bit further beyond that, but by putting in increasingly onerous registration requirements, ID requirements, and more impediments to the use of mail-in ballots. And so um, not only is the money at issue, but there is going to be a real battle over the eligibility to vote and voter registration. Um, This is by no means over, I believe. and. Even though we have seen an election in which ordinary people stood up and voted and ordinary people served as the force that counted the votes in their states, even when the police had to walk them through lines of armed protesters yelling and screaming at them and threatening them, 
they did their job. There was heroic action by ordinary Americans throughout this election, but it's by no means over. Business stood up when it was really helpful. And now the struggle goes on. Mm-hmm. So um, do you think in terms of, of campaign finance report, like first, what's the, the biggest pillar that needs to crumble there? And under, under the new administration uh, and the new uh, balance of power in, in Congress, is there any hope to you know, undoing Citizens United and other things that really uh, hamper, you know, clear and democratic uh, campaign finance? Well, I think that Citizens United and the idea of um, independent money and fueling the super PACs probably won't be, you know, just thrown out. I do think that what might happen and a likely focal point of reform is to see if the Internal Revenue Service can be at least loaned a spine and a brain so that it can be actively auditing the charities that have enabled the dark money and that the Federal Election Commission will be properly funded so that their staff can trace the Superfund money, which is disclosable. One of the things about campaign finance is that much of the worst of it is already not legal, not consistent with federal law, but no one is enforcing it. And this is not a partisan statement, really, because both parties benefit from some of this super PAC money. There's no question about that. It's just that one party saw fit to align itself with a murderous rampage through the U.S. Congress, or at least some in that party did. And so that's a question that will have to be raised. If the current commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, who serves a fixed five-year term, remains where he is, I believe nothing will be done. Because the exempt organization division of the Internal Revenue Service has been utterly gutted. There was once a time when people in that office were really respected as experts in the law. That is not true anymore. I am terribly sorry to say. And so rebuilding that part of the Internal Revenue Service and enforcing the law that says charities cannot become involved in politics this way is going to be a heavy lift in the midst of other crises going on in our country. Well, perfect. Well, we've got four years, let's say, to maybe make these things happen. Thank you so much for your time. and. I always feel a smarter person after talking with you. Thank you, Catherine. Glad to be with you. All right. See you around and stay healthy. You too. Bye-bye. Closing. Three, two, one. 
Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's White and Case International Arbitration Lecture. This year, international dispute resolution expert David Rifkin will deliver a lecture titled Post-Pandemic Arbitration, Will It Be Contact-Free? on Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021 at 12.30 p.m. Eastern. For more information, visit law.miami.edu forward slash arbitration lecture.